beginning. Welcome to the Grief Dreams Podcast. Thank you again for joining us. We always appreciate that you're listening to this and you're finding benefit. Hopefully you're finding benefit in the guests that come on and what they have to share. I'm really excited for uh, the guests we have on today. Uh, just because it's all about dreaming. And you know, you know, that's my passion if you've been listening to this for a while. <laughs> so today I'm the only host. So my name is Joshua Black. And I'm doing the research, the Grief Dreams research at Brock University. And our co-hosts aren't around today, so it's just me. So hopefully you enjoy this episode. I always, this is going to be the third time I think I've done it uh, solo. So um, it's always interesting when you have the uh, the reins to yourself. So today on the podcast, we have Isaac Tights, uh, who is a graduate student in clinical psychology at Palo Alto University. He did his rotation in pediatric assessment for ADHD and autism at San Francisco General Hospital. Isaac conducted a study on the cultural differences of bereavement dreams, and in 2012, Isaac won the research, Student Research Award from IASD on his honors thesis on lucid dreaming in depression. Since undergrad, he's become interested in researching clinical applications of dreaming. And so, welcome to the podcast, Isaac. Hey, Josh. How's it going? <laughs> it's going good. It's going good. So, congratulations on... Uh, actually completing your your grad school that's gotta feel amazing uh it's almost there i defended my dissertation actually two days before the latest dream conference and then went over to scottsdale to present on that and now i'm on my uh, internship that last year of the program but it's just clinical but you know i'm doing a little bit of research writing still on the side and so how long is the internship is it a year yeah, it's just a year-long thing. And then are you, do you become a clinical psychologist, or is it you still have to write your tests? So from what I recall of the American Psychological Association, after internship, if everything is uh, up to snuff, then I need to take one year of postdoctorate work, basically uh, doing clinical work under licensed psychologists, uh, collecting uh, I think like a thousand or a thousand two hundred hours or five hundred hours, and uh, that'll allow me to sit for my licensure exam. So I'll get my PhD. I can call myself a psychology a psychologist or a doctor, but that license is kind of the important part. Right. Wow. So you still have a little ways to go. Just a little bit, but yeah. it's getting there. It is the uh, true. Is yeah. <laughs> that's that's the most important thing. You're moving forward. And you're and you're checking off some boxes that you need to. Is the exactly. clinical doing the clinical? Does that you know give you? Because it's got it's different than school, right? Like being in school. So like, mm-hmm. do you really love doing the clinical aspect of uh, of yeah. your, your job? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I was uh, pre med in undergrad originally because I wanted to help people. I wanted to personally engage in the process of helping people. And granted, I didn't like the. Um, messier components of, of uh, medicine and surgery and things like that weren't quite my cup of tea. But when I overheard the basically a class on human development on how do infants react to their parents, I got really excited and realized, oh, that's what I want to do. So mm. I'm still engaged and interested in doing that individual work with individuals, with families and things like that. And so uh, I, I had to do something clinical as part of my graduate school and I couldn't just keep it research. 
And is there like a specialty that you're going into? Because I know in the uh, introductions, you talked about ADHD <laughs> and autism. Is that like a, the specialty you want to sort of look at or are you more open to other areas? I think I'm starting to specialize not necessarily in the diagnoses, but in the population. So children and adolescents, I'm very excited to work with. The earlier you can intervene with a, a person, the longer lasting the intervention, the cheaper it is, the more effective it is. So if I can kind of help out the kids or help out the, fa- the parents and families in helping out the kids, then the whole system gets better sooner. That's nice. That's uh, it's amazing. I think it's uh, it's great that you. I think you picked up on you know the fact if you help the children, the future becomes a little brighter <laughs> for everyone. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's amazing. That's really cool. And do you have anyone like in your family that is doing this profession, or is are you the first? I'm the first in my family, but my middle brother actually took after me as well, and uh, he's also getting his scientific psychology doctorate, which is just the clinical side. He's not as research. Uh, focus as I am, but he does cite me in his papers in school that I have to write <laughs> on occasion. That's that's pretty sweet. <laughs> so mm-hmm. You probably have some good yeah. conversations <laughs> together, right? Oh, definitely. Every time we get together, it's just psych, 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 psych. And our youngest brother is just kind of sit there, and be like, okay, you know, that's cool. <laughs> that's funny. And so, you know, like it, it seems like we've had some conversation, and it seems you really love dreaming. Um, from like all, all your research has been, you know, in this area. So what got you started into mm-hmm. loving dreams? Because in our culture, it's not one of those things that you're taught in school that this is, you know, this has any kind of meaning. Mm-hmm. Yeah, actually, um, it kind of starts on a cultural bend. Uh, when I was little, my dad used to ask me about my dreams. I'd tell him to him and he'd kind of give me a little bit of insight. Oh, this might mean you're worried about this thing. It might mean you're you're uh planning on this thing and uh that was really fun and cool but i think that was more the groundwork for it i really did dreaming as like a research focus after i watched uh that link later movie waking life in mm. uh college have you seen that one i have yeah it's pretty good so could you explain that for the audience so this is a very artsy movie uh that if you would like to impress your your friends uh, by all means, uh, you know, uh, load it up on the Netflix. Uh, I don't know if it's on Netflix. I don't know if we can even advertise that. Nonetheless, um, so basically, uh, it is, the premise is this one character is just entering into different scenes and having these philosophical <clears throat> discussions with these different characters about the meaning of life, what happens when you die, uh, personal interactions, uh, and then there's one really cool one about lucid dreaming, which really like surprised me. And I was like, "This is a thing we can do. We can just do this in our in our dreams." And uh, after I saw that, oh, by the way, just as a heads up, it's filmed in rotoscope, which means that they film it in live action, but then they filter it with some uh, some kind of an animation. Uh, filter on top of it so it looks very um odd and shaky a little bit like the colors will move out of the outlines on occasion so there's that phantasmagorical feel but nonetheless i saw it and i was fascinated by this concept and i went online i went to google scholar because i wanted to find you know official articles on it and saw that a stanford you know student had done a dissertation on this and validated it and passed. So if it got through Stanford, it must be real. That was um, 
Stephen LaBerge, um, his uh, early works in the, in the 80s on uh, validating and showing that this is a learnable skill and that you can signal yourself as being lucid while you're in the dream to a researcher on the outside. That blew my mind and I learned about the induction methods. And um, so let's, let's go back. I think the I, origins. Yeah, sure. I, think that's, I think that's really amazing. And I know like, I know this stuff, so I'm like, yeah, yeah. But I think a lot of people are, are maybe confused. So first, what's lucid dreaming? Oh, right. Um, sorry, I'm talking to someone who goes to the dream conference with me, <laughs> so we already assume that. But so lucid dreaming is when you're in a dream and you realize that you're dreaming. You are aware that you're dreaming. It is clear to you or lucid that you are dreaming. It uh, doesn't always mean that you are in control of the dream, that you can do whatever you want, that you are you know, the god of your own realm. Those are called control dreams which sometimes overlap. There's like a Venn diagram. You can kind of find yourself in the middle. But for the most part, you can be aware of yourself while dreaming. And then you know that if it's a nightmare, it can't really hurt you. Or um, you can really engage in the moment. You can be very mindful, of which lucidity is very strongly associated with waking mindfulness. Mm. So if you have food in the dream, you can really taste all the flavors and the textures of the food. Or, you know, if you have a, a, a scene in front of you, a forest or something, you can really engage in the colors and the smells and the sounds of this dream forest. So it's a very immersive experience and it's completely natural. It happens to, I think, 20% of the population, no, 10, 5 to 10% of the population may naturally have a lucid dream just on their own and not even know that that's how other people don't dream. Uh, I've had some friends that were surprised to hear that people don't dream lucidly, um, but because our culture doesn't talk about it that often, nobody knows. Yeah, it's then funny. Everyone else can learn. Sorry, it, it's funny because yeah, as you're explaining that, I had a I was teaching a sleep course, and uh, I was talking about lucid mm -hmm. dreaming, and say you know how many people have had a lucid dream, and you know like some people mm -hmm. put their hands up, and uh, the one person said how many people do it often, and only one person had their hand up. And she was, mm -hmm. she looked so puzzled. She's like, I thought everyone did this, mm -hmm. you know, like she just thought mm -hmm. that's the way dreaming was, but no, but no, mm -hmm. like it's actually very, very special, I guess, quality of a person if they can do that regularly. And it's not necessarily a quality of a person. Uh, it's naturally happening and naturally happens to them, but everyone can lucid dream. However, those who don't do it naturally will need to do, a, you know, put in a little bit of effort to practice uh, improving their dream recall, just, you know, writing down their dreams every morning so that their brain knows to remember their dreams. Because if you can't remember your dreams, then how do you remember you had a lucid dream? And then they need to practice their consciousness checks or state checks, state of consciousness checks, um, you know, pretty frequently during the day if something weird happens, you know, uh, you pull your finger, double check some text and time, making sure that they, you know, isn't wonky or wobbly, timey-wimey, depending on our Dr. Hoogian uh, fans. Um, and then eventually these skills will carry over into the dream, and then you'll practice them in a dream, and then something weird or wonky happens, and you do this check, and you realize, oh, I am dreaming, and then calm me down, self-doubt, and enjoy the dream. That's so interesting. And everyone can learn it if they want to. I think that's, that's very beautiful. I've only had... I think two in my life and they both were like flying dreams 
because uh, mm. that's when you know. Fun. <laughs> yeah, it's the first time you're like, oh, I this is a dream. I'm gonna fly. <laughs> like it's just like mm -hmm. it's very funny. Um, but uh, I want to say I remember. So it reminds me of two about the like the reality checks of the movie Inception. Mm -hmm. and that's what you know, like he mm. uh, kept doing mm -hmm. in the movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So uh, so let's go back to the research now. So there's this thing people talked about that they were able to do, which was be conscious in their dreams. And mm -hmm. people didn't believe them, right? Like that was the whole thing. People didn't believe that this actually was occurring. And so mm -hmm. then I uh, was it Labarge or Laberge? Laberge. Laberge. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. Figured out a way to sort of test, right? Like, are they even doing this? Like, how could you even test mm -hmm. that? And you want to go into that? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sure. So, the experiment that Dr. Laberge did was he, the more specific component was that he attached electrodes to uh, his scalp, to his head, and specifically to the sides of his head, the temples, right next to the eyes. And the science of it, uh, I'll make it very simplistic, but essentially, these electrodes can sense when the eyes are moving left or right. And uh, it has to do with kind of the, the, uh, the charge of the whites of the eyes versus the iris, so that you know, when the iris passes in one direction, the charge uh, picked up by the electrode changes. So you can tell, is it looking away or is it looking towards the electrode? And when he was in a lucid dream, or when his uh, participants were in a lucid dream, they would uh, signal to the researchers in the waking world that they were lucid by rotating their eyes in a very non-dream fashion. When we are dreaming, uh, we're in a stage of sleep called rapid eye movement, or REM, but our eyes are moving in a very specific fashion. You know, they'll kind of jiggle back and forth a few times and that's just how our brain acts, that's how our body acts while we're dreaming. But when you're lucid, the only thing you have control over if your body is paralyzed as it should be while you're sleeping uh, is our eyes. We can intentionally look to the left and then look to the right. And so he instructed his participants to practice this behavior so that when they became lucid, they would use that technique. They would show that they were lucid. And as his hypothesis, uh, you know, predicted that they would be able to do it, he recorded that they did it. And as science goes, hypothesis is proven. <laughs> so this illustrated that lucid dreaming is a learnable skill and uh, a valid phenomenon. Yeah, it actually exists. And I think it's such a cool like design because you're right, the whole body's paralyzed. Mm -hmm. Like, how are you going to figure it out? You can't see their dreams, right? Mm -hmm. So, like, that's mm -hmm. the only Not yet. thing. Right, like now, yeah, yeah, that's going to be interesting, right? Like, how long do you think before mm -hmm. we can uh, see our dreams? Oh, we're getting kind of close because there's a few researchers that whose uh, experiments in uh, parallel fields are getting close. Uh, specifically, uh, Kamatani in Japan and Dr. Uh, Gallant at Berkeley. Uh, they've been doing uh, different, like approaching the the dream from different ends. Uh, basically, Kamatani has been able to have uh, individuals sitting in, I believe, an fMRI, 
um, and he is scanning their brain and having them think of specific shapes. And I don't know the mechanics of it, uh, but these shapes will appear on a screen. So perhaps that's the secondary visual cortex, uh, that part of the brain that is actually uh, presenting the, the visuals while we are dreaming, uh, he might be able to illustrate or starting to illustrate that. Whereas Jack Gallant in Berkeley has, uh, and there's really cool YouTube videos of this, you can look it up or I'll forward it to you and you can put it on your website, um, where people will also be lying in an fMRI watching a movie and uh, Dr. Gallant's team will scan their brains while they're doing that, observing I forget which cortex, but basically he's able to put a side-by-side -side comparison showing how basically revisualizing what they are seeing. So he's illustrating what the brain is picking up while they're watching these movies. And it's really grainy, but you'll get to see <clears throat> the um, outline of a bird. You'll see the, a kind of uh, a strangely colored version of Steve Martin as Inspector Clouseau from uh, the Pink Panther kind of walking through a hallway um, and it does a side-by-side -side comparison of the movie that they were watching and how they've revisualized what the brain is seeing. So wow. combine uh, that together and eventually we might be able to capture a dream as it's happening. But they're wow. not specifically moving in that direction so I think it might be a while before we get there but you know, the more people know about it, the more people start the investigations and looking towards that. Maybe by 20 years we might get there. Oh, that'd be crazy. Even even earlier, mm -hmm. right? The technology that is coming out um, every year. That'd be wild. That's going to be a really interesting <laughs> thing. Would you want to know what you're doing? Yeah. Um, oh, I definitely would. Uh, just to see if what I'm actually experiencing while I'm asleep is anything related to what I believe I'm remembering in the morning. Because Freud himself pointed out that the biggest trouble with dreams is that, uh, you know, oh, the, the ego is, is trying to mask what the id wants for the super ego's uh, defense during the waking hours of the morning. So, you know, you might have your defenses down while you're dreaming and you dream what you dream, but when you wake up, what you're recalling, your brain might try to kind of mask it. That's what Freud was saying. But he's kind of right, because our brain itself operates differently while we're dreaming uh, than when we're awake. The neurons are firing at a different pace or a different frequency. Uh, different areas light up at different times as opposed to how we normally think. So, you know, how can the waking mind 100% know what the dreaming mind is doing? We only fabricate or understand it in these recollections in the morning. Right. Yeah. And like I say, like there's so, we're dreaming like so much throughout the night, and we only sometimes remember a little little bit, right? Like 10 seconds. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, mm -hmm. it'd be very interesting to see what kind. What are you really thinking about when you're sleeping? <laughs> it's to uh, be interesting. Definitely. <laughs> Yeah, and for all of your listeners that are interested in learning how to lucid dream or even just to remember their dreams, don't worry about only remembering a little snippet. Whatever you remember in the morning, just write it down. That'll raise your uh, brain's expectation to remember more, and eventually you will. That's cool. And so how often do you remember your dreams? Um, I get about five a week or so. Granted, when it, uh, I, you know, I am getting ready for work and I uh, have a regular time to bed and time to wake, I'll remember it better because 
you know, my, my body's expecting to, to sleep at this time and dream at this time. And then as it gets closer to the weekend or through the weekend, I kind of have to restart and uh, get back into better practice. Do you, uh, do you record your dreams still or no? Yeah, yeah. I have a dream diary right next to my bed and I try to write down every morning whatever I can remember, even if it's just a, a word or a theme or something like that. That's pretty good. I, I used to do that. And then I started getting like three, four dreams a night. And so, so I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> so I stopped. Because <laughs> yeah, when you wake up, up, right? Like when you wake up, it takes a little while to fall back to sleep, right? So your sleep is really choppy. It was just funny. Yeah. But yeah. Oh, it's, I'm, were, you, I'm, were you waking up in the middle of the night? Yeah. Yeah. So I'd have like four mm. or five dreams of remembering throughout the, the night. It's almost like every REM stage, mm. I would be like remembering something. Wake up, write it down, right? And that's probably the worst thing. Uh, you know, like then, now you're constantly becoming more more awake and then trying to fall asleep rather than just going back to bed. Mm. Yeah. Well, that's sleep hygiene or that's, uh, there's some, some behavioral sleep interventions, ways to let people fall back asleep instead of trying to fall back asleep is another area of clinical uh, intervention that, I, that I'm also interested in helping people out with because uh, as, you, as we both noticed, you know, as fascinating as lucid dreaming is, uh, not many people do it naturally uh, and for those that don't, they, they need to work at it. Um, but uh, everybody dreams uh, and if we can get everybody to have better sleep or more consistent regular sleep, then they might actually get to experience it uh, naturally. and helping people get that solid night of sleep is super important, not just for just capturing a cool dream, but for physical health, for mental health. Um, so making sure that you know, everybody can get to sleep and sleep the whole night as opposed to waking up every REM cycle, uh, it's definitely something to keep in mind. Yeah, I think, you know, for me, it was just because I was writing down those dreams. You know, ever since I stopped writing mm-hmm. down the dreams, um, then it's, it's not mm-hmm. an issue. But it's because I was like, you know, super into writing down every dream and like getting excited for mm-hmm. the dreams. It's like, it's like Christmas, right? And you, you just get so excited. <laughs> well, yeah, the excitement might be uh, the, the part that wakes you up. You might have gotten yeah. like too pumped and your adrenaline was pumping and that woke you up. So you got to be more mellow about it, man. Yeah, yeah. You just be like, oh, that's a cool dream, man. <laughs> just, just, yeah, I'll remember it later if it's important. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. And so what was your first lucid dream experience? Oh, cool. I haven't thought about this in a while. Let me see. My first lucid dreaming experience was after I saw Waking Life and started to learn about the induction methods. I started to practice them. And I think it was I was chatting with my brother um, and I realized that I was dreaming, and I got really excited that I was dreaming, and I was like, oh, my God, brother, I'm, I'm dreaming, and then I woke up. And <laughs> um, so that's that excitement that uh, you get too excited, and yeah, the dream will kick you out. So that was the first <laughs> snippet of it. That's really funny. It's cool you got that experience. You got so, much, you got so excited within the dream. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's almost a, not a pitfall, but that's definitely something that when you're learning lucid dreaming, you need to kind of be aware of and notice that when you become lucid, don't get too excited, calm yourself mm-hmm. down so that you're able to actually stay in the dream. That's interesting. So you got to regulate your emotions really well while you're lucid dreaming. 
Yeah, yeah. It's definitely, that's the connection to mindfulness as well. When you're mindful, you don't either get too excited or you can be aware of the excitement as it rises and falls and you don't need to get caught up in it. Right. That's cool. Wow. That's a really interesting, uh, mm-hmm. interesting dream. And so is there anything else that you've learned along uh, the way when it comes to lucid dreaming? I know you did that study with lucid dreaming and depression. Um, was it, did you have any findings? Oh, there? right. Oh, yeah. Uh, so this study was an undergrad actually right as Inception came out. So I used that as like an advertising poster. I called the study like Inception, the sleep study. So I got a lot of people, a lot of students on board. And um, basically, just as a real like snippet of the study, I just had a bunch of students online. Uh, every week they would get a link to, uh, to a survey. They'd fill out information about other depression scales, their sleeping habits, how many dreams did they remember that week, and um, a concept called locus of control, whether they felt that they were the ones in control of their life and their future, that's an internal locus of control, versus an external locus of control where uh, God, faith, powerful other people are in control of their life, which has some connections to depression. And half of these individuals, sorry, I had everybody start to practice recording their dreams so that the control group would be just those who remember their dreams. And then I had, after two weeks of doing this, uh, which is uh, the suggested amount of time to build up your dream recall. I had another half randomly randomly selected uh, to practice uh, state checks, uh, what used to be called reality checks. I'm trying to uh, start to call them state checks because you're dreaming in reality. Uh, it's just a state of consciousness. And so I had uh, that half practice um, double-checking small text and time and... Uh, flipping on and off light switches, uh, which the, the dream cannot fully uh, reproduce in, entirely. It will turn off the light switch and one light will turn off, another will turn on. Or uh, you look at small text uh, once, you turn away and you look at it again and it'll morph into something else. And so I had them practice that. And for about a month or so, uh, I kept on kind of sending out the surveys and collecting the data. But by the end, I found that at least my first hypothesis, could I teach students how to lucid dream on through this online approach? The answer was not significantly enough. And, you know, you got a bunch of college students, their sleep is terrible, and, uh, you know, they're going to get extra credit on this anyway, so they'll do what they'll do. But when I analyzed the depression, locus of control, and lucid dreaming data, I found that there was a connection between them, but not what I was expecting. In fact, those students who had a higher depressive scores, not fully clinical, but just higher scores on the scale, had more lucid dreams. Hmm. And those students, and, you know, but on the same length, those had higher lucid dreams, supposedly had also higher depression scores. Uh, and I was trying to figure this out. Why is that the case? Uh, thankfully, I didn't cause them to become lucid and therefore didn't cause them to have uh, depression. So there's no causality here. We can't show direction, but there is a correlation. There's a connection. And I explained it a few ways. One, that when we are depressed, biologically speaking, we, go, we have these uh, behaviors. We'll uh, avoid other people. We'll 
uh, will oversleep. And uh, specifically when we're oversleeping or undersleeping, these are two symptoms of depression. Uh, if you're oversleeping, you're, you're sleeping more and science shows that your dreams become more bizarre and therefore more memorable and you're more likely to become lucid uh, when you have a strange, really freaky, bizarre dream happening in front of you. That's also why nightmares are highly associated with lucidity. It's so weird that it makes you question it. Or if you are undersleeping or have insomnia, eventually you'll crash and you'll have what's called a REM rebound, which is basically you'll go right into REM sleep because we need that in order to consolidate memory. It's important for our mental health. So you might carry over some of that consciousness into dreaming right then and there. But by all means, you don't need to, you know, uh, just as an aside, you don't need to be, uh, to practice insomnia, to have lucid dreaming. There's much healthier techniques to, to just get into it or catch it. But back to the study, um, that was one explanation uh, that when we're over undersleeping, we have a higher likelihood of catching a, a lucid dream or catching ourselves in a dream. Additionally, there's something called the evolutionary theory of depression, that we evolved the symptoms of depression in order to focus our analytical energies on uh, issue. So if we have a problem, we'll think on it, we'll think on it, we'll think on it. Well, that's rumination, one of the symptoms of depression. Or we will have anhedonia. We'll not be distracted by the things that used to uh, please us so that you can focus on the issue at hand or we'll withdraw from others. We also don't want distractions. So most people, once they solve the problem, or they'll stop engaging in those behaviors and they'll come out of it. However, there's a small percentage of the population that those symptoms carry on. Either they can't solve the problem or even when the problem's solved, their brain is too stuck in these behaviors and they are then starting to become depressed or are depressed. So... I carried on that uh, line of inquiry further and hypothesized or theorized that perhaps we evolved the ability to become lucid in order to further approach a problem in a novel brain space. So yeah, we may be unable to solve the problem or unable to get out of the depressive behaviors while we're awake. So now while we're dreaming, maybe the brain is trying to help us figure out the issue by allowing us to access our dream space. That's so interesting. So it's like problem solving. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So it's uh, I love talking about this stuff, and uh, I think it's cool you're doing the research. You did the research in that, and you're so into the lucid dreaming and promoting it and raising awareness about what it is. That's yeah, uh, that's cool. Mm-hmm. So yeah. So Waking Life is the movie. Is the uh, kind of like a documentary slash movie, right? Um, so check it out if you want to know more about sort of what, what we were talking about today. And there's probably a bunch of lucid dreaming on YouTube, right? Like documentaries? There's documentaries. There's uh, a bunch of uh, lucid dreamers sharing their experiences, what works for them, uh, having guides and, and suggestions. Um, but I try to stick to the, the research side specifically just to make sure that I'm not, uh, well, that there's some validation behind it. Yeah, that's good. That's, that's a good plan. <laughs> that's a good plan. So your next study was on my favorite topic <laughs> and probably mm-hmm. a lot of other people's 
is these grief dreams. So these, we call it many things. <laughs> we call it grief dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, so these dreams of the deceased. And so what made you want to research this? So step away from lucid dreaming and research, you know, these dreams after, after, uh, after loss. Actually, um, it's interesting that I'm talking to you about this now because I saw your presentation on uh, your, your master's thesis a couple of years ago at a dream conference. And it was really cool. And I, I don't know if you remember, but I came up to you afterwards and like just checked in and said that was a cool uh, presentation. Thanks for presenting on it. And uh, this was still when I was, you know, uh, doing my lucid dreaming thing. And uh, I went to Palo Alto University thinking that I would be working with their mindfulness re- uh, researcher conducting the, the next part of my lucid dreaming inquiry. But I checked in. Uh, the cool thing about Palo Alto University is you don't actually start working with a research lab. You join in and then you apply the labs and then you go from there. So when I learned that there was a bereavement professor, I checked in with her and just asked her, hey, you know, uh, what do you think of bereavement dreams? And she said, oh, it's really fascinating, but it's a shame, like, we don't research it enough. And I was like, I know, right? And she's like, yeah, do, do you want to study this? And I was like, yeah. And she's like, okay, let's do it. So her enthusiasm kind of carried through, plus this idea or awareness that the uh, lucidity itself is fascinating, but it's, uh, it requires more effort for people to engage in. And, and I wanted to do uh, to find a, a clinical avenue for my dream work. Eventually, I want to, or my dream research, I want to apply it towards uh, issues. And uh, lucidity needs a bit more induction uh, specification and a way to make it happen even faster or more reliably. So I decided to focus on the bereavement side with her. Oh, wow. And um, initially, I, I was. I had planned some pilot studies to look at uh, the dreams of children since children uh, have a higher REM concentration than adults, but all these summer camps for for kids who've lost a parent to cancer or a sibling, um, it was really hard for me to recruit from them, understandably so. So I took a a page from your book. Uh, Actually, I started to kind of chat with you again around that time to just ask your ideas of study approaches and methods and you told me about MTurk and the way of very quickly and reliably collecting a lot of participants <laughs> online. And isn't like, that like, yeah, that sounds like a great way to get a dissertation done. Isn't that like the best thing ever? <laughs> like, it was I, such a help. Oh my goodness, I was calling up summer camps left and right. I had a research assistant following up, we had this Excel sheet and nothing was happening. And then go on to MTurk, set it up. I got 400 participants within like two months. And that was using a lot of demographic controls. I was filtering out, making sure that the, there was a balance for the demographics. By the first day, I, was, I like had a thousand hits or so. Everybody wanted to do the study and I was blocking a bunch of them by that time. The majority populations had already filled out by then. Right. Yeah, it's wild. I remember my yeah. in my MA to collect seventy six dreams took me two years, and then I came to Brock Oof. and they, and they had this program that they were using and everyone was using it where you could collect data online. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and you're like, wait a second, what? And then yeah, you can collect. So I was collecting too, like two three hundred people within a couple hours 
on MTube. Uh, it's, like, it's the most beautiful thing when it comes to trying mm-hmm. to get a generalized population because you could try to do it in a university, but you're just getting undergrads, which is not really generalizable. Mm-hmm. So that's really cool. And I'm glad you, you uh, use that and you're able to, to get those uh, participants. Were you surprised mm-hmm. with the dreams that came in? Because like when I first looked at these dreams, I was surprised with the content because all, all I really knew was my own dreams and maybe a couple of other people's mm-hmm. that they share. Like when you mm-hmm. looked at the dreams that came in, were you surprised at all? Yes and no. I was definitely surprised when some people tried to kind of cheat the system and, and type uh, just like ASCFG uh, as their dream. And I was like, all right, well, now you're just wasting my time and I'm not going to you know, reward that. Or somebody tried to just write in the, the Webster's Dictionary definition of uh, emotion or something like that. I was like, nope, that's not a dream. But when it came to the actual dreams themselves, they all seem to have a very dreamlike quality to them. There was this kind of ambling narrative. Uh, there was the surprise sometimes at which characters was appearing or how maybe the emotions at play weren't always what they were expecting. But they all seemed uh, naturally dreamlike and uh, fascinating what they were coming up with or how they were engaging with the deceased in the dreams. That's cool. That's uh, it's pretty. It's he like said it's always fascinating, interesting, and there's so many different types of these dreams, right? Like, and mm-hmm. they're all functioning on a different level because you have these big dreams, which is more or less like what I collected in my MA, where mm-hmm. it was just like those remembered dreams, right? But I think you collected the most recent dreams, right? Yep. So, so we so that was the major difference. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah, and that you get a different type of dream because this could just be a dream from last night that didn't really mean much. And so it has very dreamlike qualities. So did you see any kind of like separation between um, themes that I saw in sort of the most memorable mm-hmm. versus uh, the any new themes you saw in just the, the, most, uh, recent. the most recent? Yeah, yeah uh, in fact. Uh, that was one of the main aspects about our studies that I wanted to kind of capture differently because when you ask for the most memorable, you definitely do get those very impactful things because that's what sticks with people. But I wanted to capture what was the normative dream and dream, what was normally happening. Uh, Because if we ask someone on the street, what's your most memorable dream, most times it's probably going to be a nightmare or something very impactful, but people don't always dream in nightmares. People don't always dream in these big sweeping dreams. And when I was collecting these dreams, a large percentage of them fell into that other category that uh, didn't quite fall under the main categories. But when I started to look at them again, I found that they were a lot of what um, Patricia Garfield, uh, who's uh, bereavement dream themes um, you and I are working off of, um, her dreams of the, um, not necessarily the mundane, but the uh, everyday uh, kind of uh, spending time with the the deceased, just doing oh. the, the same things that uh, they used to do. The daily activity. Um, there we go, daily activity. Yeah. And taking a journey dreams, they seem to be mm-hmm. popping back up. So uh, just like, cool. you know, 
you're uh, at home with grandma and she's cooking something for and you're uh you know just sitting on the the kitchen at the kitchen table it's just the same thing you used to do your daily activity with them or those taking a journey dreams you know when you're walking with uh, this person or you're driving with this person um just the kind of extra i don't know i wouldn't want to say filler things but just the usual stuff that you do with them that's been in your brain for so long of course it's going to pop back up so those uh cool. i got to see a bit more adding to your comfort dreams i noticed that i was getting a lot of advice and gift giving and that didn't always fit into the the comfort definition sometimes mm. you know when grandma's done cooking she'll come and she'll give you the dish and this is a comforting thing but it's not a hug it's not a, a smile it's not words um so you can get that as well oh that's so interesting yeah it's funny the mm-hmm. uh the daily activity i remember cuz i was searching for that in in my data because mm-hmm. garfield talked about it and i think i only had mm-hmm. one so i couldn't really have it as a theme and so it went into <laughs> other right and it's just like that's a, the problem yeah. with you know your sample and so that's really interesting that mm-hmm. you you're seeing this more often in just normal dreams. So those dreams aren't people's most memorable dreams. They're just but they're mm-hmm. dreaming of this just doing these activities. And what do you think that does mm-hmm. for someone who's grieving? Like what do you think that function is for? Uh, so this is actually uh do you want me to go into the cultural components because it's sure. Yeah, sure, well. sure. Yeah. All right. So I'll say one thing about uh our our research approaches and then I'll go into that but you you mentioned that you only found one uh daily activity dream i found only one help crossing over dream uh oh. and so our different approaches would only allow us to capture uh more or less of the mundane versus the magnanimous and i'm trying to stick with the alliteration nonetheless i also analyzed by cultural groups by uh gender by ethnicity by religion and trying to see if there's any correlation specifically for these categories and i found that speaking of other lots of the men would have these other dreams uh in gen- in general i almost said in gender but also specifically for the caucasian and christian samples they tended to dream of something that didn't quite fit the other categories And I can't say specifically it was the daily activity dreams but I did see that a lot of men had these daily activity dreams and this maps on to how men in waking life majority of them deal with grief by going through their daily routines by sticking to their structure by engaging in their work by engaging in their regular routines they can many men do tend to uh recover from grief or get uh, through the grief process by sticking to their daily schedule. Mm. And that helps most men, but not all of them. Obviously there's some that that strategy doesn't quite work. On the other side, women tended to dream more uh in the healthy happy category, either dreaming of the deceased as, you know, being radiant, being happy and enjoying themselves laughing, uh or being healthy, not no longer sick in the dream, no longer in in bed at the hospital in the dream running around and what have you or they'll also uh, so that was more prevalent in the caucasian and christian women sample and then for the caucasian women there was a trend for more separation dreams 
where they will dream of the deceased uh, either fading away or behind a barrier of some sort or just talking about having to go. And this parallels with how women, a majority of women, may tend to respond to grief by reaching out to their social networks, by engaging with their family, with their friends, with thinking about the deceased. Um, and for many women, that tends to work as well, to process the grief, to engage in their social network. But for both of these genders, both uh, sides of the gender spectrum, when they cannot or do not recover from grief using their gender normative strategies, when they use the opposite end of the gender spectrum's approach, research shows, not my research, but other studies, have shown that that helps them get better. We're seeing in the dreaming data a continuity, or the continuity hypothesis, that waking life is reflected in dreaming, once again. That's pretty cool. And I think it's very interesting, too, mm -hmm. with the men dreaming more of the other, and it could be, right? We don't know, but, you know, it could be those mundane mm -hmm. kind of things. Because, like, you mm -hmm. wonder, like, what people long for, what people miss, you know? Um, mm -hmm. And you think there'd be gender differences, because there's different ways people love, right? And, like, what they want or what they conceive of love mm -hmm. from the other. And you'd think it'd be, you know, like, maybe for men, they are just longing for that person to eat dinner with, right? Like, that's something that always mm -hmm. made them happy were for maybe like sort of a woman, it could be sort of that engagement or talking to each other or something like that. Um, yeah, it's, mm -hmm. it's really very interesting to, to even think that there are gender differences in the themes. Um, wow, that's and, really interesting. And in addition, yeah, and in addition, it may not even be the longing per se, but just the missing of the date of what they do. So, you know, during uh, waking life when we had when men would have their their family or loved ones with them, they would engage with them in these ways, and they'd really maybe this might be how we remember each other that we remember just hanging out with grandpa. We would just remember going on that on these walks with our our loved ones. Uh, whereas women, they really remember uh, engaging in one's another's well-being and mm -hmm. and feeling the connection between them. So as we are in waking life, so we are in dreaming life. As we've engaged with our loved ones uh, in the past, so we remember them in our dreams. That's amazing. That's uh, it's cool. I'm really excited that you're able to do some research in the field because you, as you know, it's very, very limited. <laughs> and so it's just like <laughs> you know, it's, it's for me, it's, it's super exciting that you know there's someone out there that actually you know did a, a study on this stuff. And so I'm happy that you did it and you're raising awareness. And I look forward to, you know, what you can do with that. And as you help people in the future, uh, how you can incorporate grief dreams in your clinical practice. Thank you very much. I definitely want to make sure that we bring more scientific uh, uh, regimen, not regimen, uh, scrutiny onto, uh, onto this phenomenon as well as how we can apply it to help uh, each other out. And I really appreciate that you are engaging in this research as well, because without your preliminary investigations and your refining the uh, uh, approach uh, to really looking at our, uh, our grief dreams, I you know, might not have gotten to that either. And uh, when more people are engaging in their dreams and talking and sharing their dreams, uh, 
I think will be a, a healthier society. All right. And so when, uh, when you, you know, we've been talking for almost a little while now, right? And I'm like, man, I haven't got to your, your own grief yet and your own dreams. So, oh, right. <laughs> so I was like, okay, so when it comes to your own life, um, have you had your own grief dreams? Is that, cause that's how I started. Yeah. Too. So have you had your own? Yeah. Um, do you mind if I kind of share, uh, one that was kind of, uh, really impactful? Yeah, of course. Okay. So, um, I'll give a little context, at least in waking life beforehand, I had a partner break up with me that night and, um, it was kind of a mutual thing, you know, you know, she didn't want to stick around. It wasn't quite working for her, uh, for whatever reason, mis mismatch of, of emotion or level of emotion. Nonetheless, I, you know, can't make them stay. So, okay, well, it was nice and see you later. And then, uh, so that night I had this dream that I'm kind of walking through the, uh, the kitchen of the house that I was at and I kind of recognized that I was dreaming. So I did a state check and, re and became lucid and decided I wanted to see what the dream had in store for me. And so I turn around and the dining room was not the dining room of the house that I was in, but the, uh, the dining room from my old childhood home. And it was set uh, for a Shabbat dinner and uh, it felt like my departed grandfather was there. I could kind of sense his presence. I didn't see him uh, his figure, but I felt he was there. I was like, oh, cool, Grandpa's here. Great, what's, you know, what's next? What's the dream have for me next? And so I walk through uh, the doorway and I find myself in a marketplace. Uh, this Israeli outdoor marketplace where a bunch of vendors are selling fruit and vegetables and things like that. And I bump into this friend of mine from college who unfortunately passed away due to a congenital heart disease. We're, we're chatting, we're kind of catching up, and I'm um, telling him, yeah, I know, I, I, gotta, I gotta find this fruit, and um, he's like, oh, you know, maybe it's over here, maybe it's over there, it helps me out, I thank him, and then I gotta go. And then I leave the marketplace, and I go to the corner of the street, and there's this woman who reminds me a bit of uh, the partner I, you know, just broke up with. And, uh, we're saying how, you know, it's not you, it's not me, you know, we can't quite do the long distance thing, but you're an awesome person and take care of yourself and I'll see you later. And so that was three different types of bereavement in a lucid dream that I had the night before my dissertation proposal defense on bereavement dreams. <laughs> That's crazy. <laughs> yep. That's wild. That's actually really interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh man, that was really cool. <laughs> and so I'm guessing, like, so when you woke up, like, how did you process it all? Well, first I wrote it down because that's what you're supposed to do, and um, I underlined the uh, the elements that were very impactful to me. But essentially, I saw this as a reflection of you know, my, my thinking about my dissertation, the, so I kind of left the, the fact that this was before my dissertation uh, out from the beginning because I'd like it to use it as a punchline. But I, my care, like while I was dreaming, I went to the kitchen to get some 
throat lozenge or whatever because my throat was sore and I was worrying about my dissertation presentation. I wanted to, you know, be able to speak. Um, I went to the market to find fruit because I wanted to bring a snack for my dissertation committee. If you're ever in research, it helps to feed uh, your dissertation committee members. Um, and so each of these elements had some form of support, or I felt some form of support from my departed loved ones. My grandfather has been uh, kind of present in my dreams, and he will kind of just, you get that sense of like, I'm here for you and I'm supporting you. Uh, my buddy from college, uh, he was there and uh, also felt like, you know, he's there to kind of uh, pump me up and kind of get excited with me. And then even this uh, this partner of mine, um, Thankfully, it was an amicable breakup, and uh, you know we we're able to kind of just support each other and, and kind of get that uh, sense of uh, support even in separation. Wow, that's so interesting. That's cool. And mm -hmm. so, was this the first time yeah. you you dreamt of uh, like your 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 grandfather or your your friend? No, there's another interesting dream from uh, actually the night after uh, my family and I had buried my grandfather. I'm happy to share it, but I don't know how much time we have left. Hey, it's up to you, my friend. <laughs> All right. So um, in the Jewish culture, uh, you need to bury the body ASAP. Got to get it back to the earth that it came from as soon as possible. So when my grandfather died, we all got to Israel like right as soon as we could. I actually, that was the first year of my graduate schooling and I had to uh, take a hold on my final exams actually um, and so we went to the uh, cemetery and uh, there's a ritual where um, one member of the family needs to confirm that the body we're putting in the ground is the body of the deceased that you know we intended to um, and so you know my dad was kind of called into the uh, there's a special room there, I forget what it's called. Um, and you know, we were invited to come in, and my brothers and I all came in, and my cousins did too. And uh, we were in the back of the room, we couldn't quite see everything. And um, I could only see like uh, the shroud, and then like they kind of uncovered the, the head, and I only saw like you know, my grandfather's chin and nose, I didn't see anything else. But that wasn't my job to confirm anything, it was my dad's. And so you know, it confirms and we go and we kind of uh, walk the body to the, the cemetery, to the, to the graveside, place them in, kind of put the dirt on them, and then you know, we go home. And that night I had a dream where I am uh, running from something and in, a, in a mountainous forested region and I'm running from something. Um, and I come across this very tall, broad, man but he's entirely made of shadow there is no defining features no out no no clothing i can it's just darkness and it looks onto me and the eyes are glowing and i hear it say run and i couldn't see any mouth but the next thing i know i'm on the top of a mountain looking down at this figure and this wolf comes up to it eyes also glowing also made of shadow and the figure looks to me and the same voice echoes and says live and then I wake up and I come to my father who uh, was you know, sleeping and 
guest room at, at the time, and I say, Dad, I, I think I saw Sabashaya. Saba means grandfather in Hebrew. And he asked me to tell him the dream, and I do. And he asked me, you were there at the identification of the body, weren't you? I said, yeah. He's like, did you see Saba's face? He said, only up to the nose. I said, you didn't see his eyes. I said, no, I didn't. So my dad tells me that his eyes were open, that your grandmother wasn't able to close his eyes uh, when he passed, and his eyes stayed open. So the fact that I felt it was him, that that was the imagery that we saw, and that was the case when he passed, these all seemed to line up to show me that it was indeed my grandfather. And the message that I got was basically, you know, get to the top of your field and live, live your life. Mm. So that support still sticks with me. Oh, that's amazing. Wow, that's cool. And you feel you're living your life. Yeah, I'm no longer in the medicine field. I'm definitely in psychology and I'm working with kids and that's what my internship's about. And I'm still studying and researching dreams. And um, when you're uh, living in Portland, you're very much living. So, yeah. (laughs) That's amazing. I think it's a great message for anyone who's bereaved, you know, like is to continuing to find your passion and to live your life. Um, as you remember yeah. those who who died before you, and you said they get to that mountain, to get to that your peak of happiness. And that that's pretty mm-hmm. cool. And that, you know, thank you for sharing that. Thank you for uh, having the space for me to share it. All right. So our last question that we always ask our guests is: If you could have a dream tonight of someone who mm-hmm. has died, uh, what would that dream look like to you? Mm. Ooh. Well. I know I have dreams already of these family and friends, so I want to see if I can connect with somebody I haven't seen. And that would be, uh, see, now I got to decide between one of my favorite authors, Ursula K. Le Guin, who has an amazing book about dreaming called The Lace of Heaven. Everyone should read it. Don't bother with the movies, they were really bad. Or, try to see uh, Robin Williams or David Bowie just to kind of touch bases and, and get an experience of hanging out with them. Hmm. That'd be cool. Would you want all of them in the same room? Oh, man. David Bowie round, round table discussion? <laughs> uh, I don't know, because I think Robin would probably take over the discussion and David would just be like, yeah, that's funny. <laughs> That's so that's interesting. You know, like most people it's kinda of cool how you want to dream that of someone you haven't had yet. And I think that's very in, important just to even say that we don't have dreams of everyone that you know that has died. And so Well we don't remember the dream. We don't remember yet, that died. Yeah. Yeah. And sometimes we really want to. And, and celebrities it, are, you know, very important in our lives. Definitely. And as an aside, uh for all of your listeners, uh you know, I noticed that dreams aren't the only way that we connect with the dead. It's not the only continuing bond that we have. And if you don't remember a dream of the deceased, that doesn't necessarily mean that you're not connected with them. There's other intentional uh, and sometimes unintentional ways that we connect with the deceased. And so, yes, you can set an intention to dream of the deceased before you go to bed and practice improving your dream recall frequency or even become lucid and trying to summon them. But 
we can't always control our dreams and our dreams will sometimes try to show us what we you know are thinking of or need to see and that might not always be the deceased but by all means that should not detract from your connection with them from your relationship that you had with them and uh, dreaming is only one way beautifully said i think that's a great way to end the podcast and great advice for all those people who are listening who they may want one or um, value those dreams and they want more and you're just saying like hey like there's other ways you can do it it's just one way um, and relax and chill you know and you know like just you know remember you know how to live and you know these dreams um, shouldn't I don't, like even for me I don't believe these dreams are the reason we live but they are definitely a great bonus <laughs> if we get them you know like <laughs> it's a great reminder I, of I the think... love <laughs> <laughs> Definitely. Uh, Dumbledore once said, it does not do to dwell on dreams and forget them. And Dumbledore is from Harry Potter? Harry Potter. Yeah, man. <laughs> okay, yeah. All right. <laughs> <laughs> Where was your childhood, buddy? <laughs> not in Harry Potter. <laughs> uh, you That's funny. All right. So uh, thank you so much, Isaac, for coming on. Is there any place uh, if people want to sort of look up you or if you have any contact information or media stuff that you want to share? Um, now's the time to do it. Sure. Uh, you can look me up on the IASD membership page, the International Association for the Study of Dreams. It has my contact information there if you ever, if you ever have any questions. And um, I'd be more than happy to uh, to respond to them there. Uh, my Twitter handle, uh, I think you can just search, or, uh, man, I haven't used Twitter in a while, but on occasion I'll be sharing any interesting research. Um, you can type in um, Young Freudian, J-U-N-G-F-R-E-U-D-I-A-N, and that should uh, pop me up. And you can see all the interesting uh, studies that I'm that I'm getting excited by, dreaming or uh, psychology or in general. And uh, I'll see you all in uh, Dream Space. Amazing, amazing. So yeah, once again, thank you so much for coming on. It was a pleasure. I always love talking about this uh, this topic, and we talked about so many. And there's so much more I want to talk about the cult, uh, the cultures of dreaming and all that. So we probably have to have you back mm -hmm. on to talk about all of that because I know you're familiar with it. Um, yes, but at the yeah. end of the day, just thank you so much for doing the work you're doing, raising awareness, and I said like, and and keeping in contact with me. It's always great. You know, I totally forgot that uh, we met way back. It must have been like five, six years ago. Um, I think that's mm -hmm. amazing. You never know like what kind of impact you can have on people in the future, and I think that's like just goes Definitely. to show. You know, like you don't know, you know, who you're going to meet or what you're going to do. So you know, be positive and you know, put your best foot forward. To everyone you meet um because you just never know you know what they're going to do for humanity as we move forward so i wish you all the best as you uh, continue with your uh clinical psychology and getting that and then you know helping others along uh, along their journey thank you very much all right just to wrap up the show now um if you want you can check out our platform at griefdreams.ca for more information on the topic we're gonna have to we have common questions asked and themes but we're gonna have to um actually add some of those themes that you're talking about today uh on there and then uh, we're going to have to, uh, and also our, we have a Facebook group, Grief Dreams Facebook group. Uh, check us out there, Instagram or Twitter at Grief Dreams. We also started a YouTube and uh, Instagram TV channel. You can check those out. And if you want to be a guest on the podcast, uh, feel free to email us um, what you'd like to share and maybe the dream that you had. 
And then you can find all the content information on griefdreams.ca. And with so as we'd like to wrap up with love and gratitude from us to you. Introduce myself. You have introduced yourself. This is a very good conversation.